It's amazing to me just through a simple gospel conversation how something so simple can transform so much. It was in Boston uh, back in the 1853 that there was a young man who was a Sunday school teacher who was burdened for the young men in his Sunday school class to come to know Christ. There was young man, one young man in particular who he was burdened for, and so he went to his place of work, a shoe store. And he went in the shoe store one day, shared the gospel with this young man. He heard the gospel and believed that young man's name was D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody became one of the greatest evangelists of all time. He would travel throughout the United States and across the United Kingdom preaching the gospel. Well, one time while he's over in the British Isles, he is preaching the gospel at a small chapel. The pastor there, Frederick Meyer, hears D.L. Moody. He's so captivated by the gospel that he says, I'm going to leave this pastorate and become an evangelist. This man leaves Great Britain, comes to the United States, and he begins preaching the gospel at these evangelistic revivals. He has a large influence on a man named Wilbur Chapman. Wilbur Chapman hears this man, Frederick Meyer, preach the gospel and realizes, I need to become an evangelist. So he starts preaching the gospel all over the United States. One of the young men that he truly impacted was a preacher whose name was Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was a major league baseball player who left his professional baseball career to become an evangelist. He became known as the boxing preacher. He would swing his arms around, imploring people to believe the gospel. Well, he decided that he was going to go and do a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina. While he's in Charlotte, he invited another evangelist to come and preach several of the meetings. That man's name was Mordecai Ham. And as the word went out throughout Charlotte that there was a revival taking place, Mordecai Ham would preach every night. And there was a dairy farmer who wanted to see the teenagers in his workplace come to know Christ. So every night he would fill up the back of his pickup truck and drive these teenagers to come hear Mordecai Ham preach the gospel. There was one 16-year-old boy who kept hearing the gospel every night and was just captivated. On the last night of the revival, the only person to respond to the invitation was that 16-year-old boy named Billy Graham. Billy Graham has preached the gospel to more people than anyone in history. And it all started with one gospel conversation 80 years earlier at a shoe store. When a church gets serious about the gospel and telling people about Jesus, God's presence begins to rest upon the people and he begins to move. That's what we see happening in Acts chapter two. Let me show you. Grab your Bible. And turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We are studying the book of Acts together as a faith family in a sermon series called Since. We've been setting up camp here in chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 for five weeks, memorizing these verses as a church, looking at these five marks of a gospel-shaped community. We've seen so far that this gospel-shaped community in Acts chapter 2, there is biblical teaching reverent worshiping, sacrificial living, generous giving, and as we're going to see today, gospel sharing. 
Here's the significance of Acts 2, is that God is now dwelling inside of his people. The Holy Spirit has taken up permanent residence in the hearts of these believers. He tabernacles inside of us as these followers of Jesus in Acts 2, as they trust in Christ, as they believe the gospel. But furthermore, in verses 42 through 47, they reveal a community of people filled with the Spirit. They're growing in numbers and they're overflowing with gratitude and love. This type of community that Luke is describing here, it's a foreshadowing, y'all, of what is to come in the new kingdom. And there's coming a day in which love and joy and unity will abound as God's people live in a world without sin or suffering or death. Luke here is showing us what kind of people we are to become. You see, outward-looking churches are healthy churches. Churches that look inward will eventually die. But what we see in Acts 2 is a church that is looking outward. They're looking to engage people who are far from God and to tell them the good news of Jesus and how anybody and everybody can get in on this. This is what we see happening here at the end of Acts chapter 2. Let's look at the text together in Acts 2 beginning with verse 42 through 47. The scripture says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. In Acts 2, people are coming to Christ every day. Every day as the people are preaching the gospel to their neighbors. I want you to notice this morning in the text how the Lord is working through his people and how we today can join him in this gospel work. I want you to see the first thing here in the text is that Jesus is the one who saves his people. Jesus is the one who saves his people. The Lord is the subject of this verse. He is the agent, verse 47, who is at work. He is the one who saves. Every day, the Lord added to those who were being saved. Every day in Jerusalem, people are coming to faith in Christ. Every day, people were jumping kingdoms going from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Every day, the Lord is rescuing people from sin and death and hell. But let's make no mistake about this, faith family. God is the one who is sovereign over salvation. God is the one who rescues and saves. He is the one who rescued and saved you. Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 says, Salvation is of the Lord. Isaiah 43, I, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. You see, no one, no one can peacock around and say, I pulled up the boots on my own salvation. No, here, no one here can say, I saved myself. It's not because of me. It's because he, it's because of what he did in my heart and life. You see, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 1, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were completely cut off from God, unable, 
and unwilling to even come to him. Paul says in Romans 3 that there is no one who is righteous, not even one. No one seeks God. No one goes after him. All have turned away from him. But God, who is rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, because of his great love for us, he made us alive in Christ. You see, the gospel is not that Jesus makes bad people good, but Jesus makes dead people alive. This is what Jesus came to do, is through his death and resurrection, those who believe this gospel, he's not trying to make you a moral person, he's trying to make you an alive person. He's transferring kingdoms, taking you from death to life, darkness to light. And when you believe the gospel, when you trust in Christ, it is from there that you grow in godliness, that your morality changes. But let's make sure we get the gospel right. And you don't try to clean yourself up and then come to Jesus. You just come to Jesus and he will clean you up. Watch how he works through his gospel. You see, outside of Christ, you and I, we're dangling over the mouth of hell by a thread. But then Jesus came and with his omnipotent grip, grabbed hold of us. And he saved us. He rescued us all by his grace. He made you alive and he is the one who has rescued you. Now, lest you and I ever begin to think that we are the ones who rescued ourselves, God yanks the carpet out from beneath our feet with Ephesians 2. In verses 8 and 9, Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, if you could save yourself You would walk around pointing to the name on the back of the jersey. You'd have a little swagger to you about how you were able to rescue and to save and how you were able to do all these things. And so the Lord takes all of that away because he will not give his glory to another. God will not not share his glory with us. It's He who has rescued and saved. He is the one who has made us alive. You did not earn your salvation. You did not deserve your salvation. It was completely a work of God's sovereign grace. And since it is the Lord who saves, it is the Lord who gets the glory. Luke writes, verse 47, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now there's an implication of verse 47. It means that when you and I are sharing the gospel, when we're sharing the gospel with our coworkers and our teammates and our, our neighbors, it means the pressure is off, okay? You can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. As much as I wish I could rescue and save people, I can't, and you can't. It's the Lord who saves. He is the one who rescues. So the pressure is off of you and I to have to perform or have the perfect word at the perfect time. And it's as if we failed if we don't lead someone to Jesus. It's not up to you. You and I don't save anybody. We're like the U.S. Postal Service. We're the messengers. We deliver the mail. We don't write it. God has given us the message that we deliver to the people. We just got to be faithful to deliver the message. We want to bring God's word to bear upon people. And we pray and we urgently just seek God and say, God, would you rescue? Would you move? Would you save? But ultimately, he is the one who does so. 
So we're, we seek to be faithful. We want to make sure we're preaching the gospel because we know it is the Lord who saves. Question, what about you? Have you been saved? Have you been rescued? Have you come to the point in time in your life in which you have surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, today you can be saved. You can be rescued right here and now. That if you will say, I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm going to trust in Christ, that he died on the cross in my place. That that should have been me on the cross. That should have been me dying and paying for my sin. But Jesus stepped in and took my place. His blood was shed so that I could be forgiven, so I could be washed and be made new. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe that you defeated death on the third day for me. And so I'm no longer going to go my path, walk my life. I'm going to repent. It's the Bible word. You turn from sin and self and you trust in Christ by faith. You say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And today you can be saved by turning from sin and trusting in him. Oh, that you would do that. Oh, that you would trust in Christ. May I say to you, nothing else matters more than that. What you're eating for lunch today doesn't matter in comparison to that. Your job isn't even close to comparing to where you're going to be spending the next eternity. Where you're going to be in the next 20 years is far less important from where you're going to be in the next 20 billion years. Get the gospel right. Trust in Christ alone to save you. And trust me, he will save you. He promises by his own word that he will rescue and redeem and save forever all who call upon the name of the Lord. Trust in him today. Call upon his name. Jesus, would you save me? And I want to repent and trust in you. And you can have my heart and my life. And I'm now going to follow you for the rest of my life. You see, it is Jesus who saves his people. The second thing we see in the text is that Jesus is the one who builds his church. The scripture says, every day the Lord added to their number. That word number is a reference to the counting of people who were part of the church. All right, we've already seen in verse 41 that 3,000 people were added to them. The church was keeping records of who was in the church. Okay, even from infancy, we see where the church is counting those who are claiming to be followers of Jesus. This text is implying that the church had a role of who were believers. Now, just because someone is a member of a church does not mean that they're a believer. But if you are a believer, you are to be a member of a church. That's the pattern that we see throughout the New Testament, that church membership doesn't save, Jesus saves. Let's make sure we get that first. But if you are in Christ, we see even here in Acts 2, is that there is a number, there's a group of people in which they are keeping track of who is a member of the church because they are claiming to know Christ. You see, membership is a declaration that I have put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, for the New Testament, being a member of a local congregation is expected. You see, church is not optional. It's essential. All right, so can anyone join a church? No, not according to Scripture. Not anybody can be a member. Only those who were, have been born again, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, those who have been saved, only those who believed the gospel 
Only those who are born again believers in Christ can be members. This is the pattern we see in Scripture. It's not my rule. Again, it's God's rule. It's what he's laid out for us. One of the ways we do that here at Westwood is we want to be as faithful to the New Testament as we can. And what we see here in this this born again is essential for, for not only for salvation, yes, but for church membership. So the way we do it here at church is through our Discover Westwood class, in which you hear about mission and vision and what we believe and why. But more than that, you sit down with someone and a decision partner, and you share with them how you came to faith in Jesus Christ. We're looking for a valid testimony in which you're saying, I'm believing not in myself or in my works, but in Christ. And I've put my faith and trust in him. Why do we do that? It's because we want to be faithful, that the church is made up of followers of Jesus, those who have truly trusted in him. But when someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus and is a member of a church begins walking away from Jesus, begins disobeying his commands, that's when Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 to walk the path of church discipline. All right, what is church discipline? Jesus lays out the three-step process in Matthew 18. That if you see a brother or sister who's walking away from the truth, they're believing something that's not true, or they're turning away from the truth and they're living in sin, Well, Jesus says, go to them one-on-one and you approach them. You call them out in the most loving and truthful way. You you call them and don't go this way. Repent, come back this way. If they repent, you've won your brother, Jesus says. But if they don't repent, you go to step two. You take two or three witnesses with you and you go and you confront and say, man, what are we doing? Don't do this. Turn from this sin. Come back to Christ. Come back to the fellowship. Walk with him. And if, you've, if they repent, you've won your brother, Jesus says in Matthew 18. But if they don't repent, then you go to step three as you take it to the church. Well, why is Jesus giving such specific instructions in Matthew 18 on how the church is to function? On someone who's walking away from the truth or someone who's living in sin. That if they do not repent, he, Jesus says you treat them as a sinner, as a tax collector. You treat them like they're not a believer. Why does Jesus say that? It's because he's protecting the integrity of his church. He's letting the church be his ambassador, his body, to clarify to people, we don't think you're a believer. Man, we love you so much. Don't walk that path. Don't go that way. You're walking away from Christ and his word. Return back here. Come back to Jesus. Why is Jesus so serious about this? Because he wants to protect his people. So that on the last day, those who are hidden in Christ, you can have confidence that you're mature in Christ. You're hidden in Christ. So that on that day, you don't have to fear or fret. So that when you stand before the great white throne, you don't have to worry or be afraid because you know that you are hidden in Jesus. You see, the significance of Acts 2 is that what we see is that it is the Lord who is ultimately adding to his church. This is the Lord's church, y'all. It's not your church, it's not my church. It's the Lord's church. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus promised that he will build his church. And that's what's happening in Acts 2. And that's what's happening right here. And that's what's happening all over the world. Jesus is building his church. 
For he is the foundation. He is the head of the church. He is the groom of the church. He is the provider of the church. He is the protector of the church. He is the savior of the church. The church belongs to Jesus for he purchased her with his precious blood. We belong to Jesus and you belong to Jesus. And what we see happening in Acts 2.47 is the Lord is building his church just as he said he would. And what's amazing is that each and every one of us who are hidden in Christ have believed the gospel and have covenanted together within this faith family, we are the church. And while I'm grateful for the facilities in the building that give us air conditioning that's actually working this week, and while I'm grateful for all of these resources and tools, the churches, the people of God who have believed the gospel and have covenanted together that we're going to persevere to the end together, that we're going to keep walking with Jesus until he calls us home or he returns. This is what we see throughout the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, don't you yourselves know that you You are God's temple. And that the Spirit of God lives in you. You see, the temple is no longer a building in downtown Jerusalem. The temple are God's people because the Spirit lives here. uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God will build his church. And his people, we are living stones, a spiritual house, the true temple being built to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. And as imperfect as you and I are, and as much as we fumble and we sin and we make mistakes, Jesus still loves his church. He still protects his church. He promises to keep us even to the end of the age. All right, so how does God do this? How does God, how does he save people and grow his church? I'll put this in your notes. This is what we see from Acts 2.47. Is that it's through his people sharing the gospel. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What Jesus is pointing forward to is an army of believers who are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. What's happening in Acts 2.47 is Jerusalem is hearing the gospel through the people. And the Lord is saving his people. He is building his church. And simultaneously, he's using the preaching of his people to advance the mission of the gospel. This is what Jesus uh, told us to do in uh, Mark 16.15, in which he says, go into all creation. Uh, I didn't say that right. Uh, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. Uh, Romans 1, 16, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Like this gospel is precious and it's everything. And it's been entrusted to us, his church. Have you ever had the joy of leading somebody to Christ? Man, I got to tell you, it's an amazing experience that when you sit down with somebody 
and you share the gospel with them and they're like, you know what? Yeah, I'm ready to believe the gospel. I'm ready to trust in Christ. I'm ready to say yes to Jesus. Man, I'm telling you, man, I, it, it's better than a touchdown. It, it's, it's better than any final score of a championship game because it's amazing that God uses you to help bring people into the kingdom. Now, it's not us who saves. It's God who saves. But the fact that he uses us, what a mystery that the king of the universe uses people like us. Amazing to think that we are a part of joining him in his mission, that he doesn't need us. He wants us. He invites us in on the process of preaching the gospel that we are the one who, ones who step in and we are the, the postal service who delivers the message. Hey, we want you to know anybody can get in on this. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. And it's amazing that as we share the gospel with our coworkers and with our neighbors, God begins to change us. You see, evangelism is a tool of sanctification in your life. If you want to start growing in your faith, go across the street and share the gospel with your neighbor. If you find yourself growing lukewarm in your faith, take your coworker out to lunch and share the gospel. If you feel like you're spiritually stagnant, go to the mall, approach a stranger, and share the gospel with them. Oftentimes, I'll have people say, I'm just not being fed. I'm not growing. My question is, who are you sharing the gospel with? Because here's what I've found is that if I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, it leads me to two places. It drives me to my knees in prayer, and it drives me to my Bible for answers. Because sure enough, they're going to ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. And my answer is, that's a great question. I don't know the answer, but I'm going to find it for you. But it also drives me to my knees in prayer because I'm pleading for God to change their heart. I'm praying for unbelievers by name. Oh God, would you rescue them? Would you draw them to Christ? Open their eyes. I can't do that, God, but you can. And so God, would you move in that way? See, if you want to start maturing in your faith, start sharing the gospel. And some of you are sitting here thinking, oh my goodness gracious, that is terrifying. You want me to do what? You want me to start sharing the gospel? Yes. Why? Because somebody shared the gospel with you. And there was somebody who stepped out of their comfort zone and loved you enough to tell you about Jesus. And now you get to go and do the same. I didn't come to Christ until age 18. And I think about all the believers that I went to high school with who never told me about Jesus. When I was 16, I got in a car accident where I hit my head on the dashboard. I wasn't wearing a seatbelt. If I died, where would I be today? I'm not sure about y'all, but man, I, I want to leverage what God's entrusted to me to get the gospel as far and wide as long as we still have breath. And we don't know when our last day is going to be. You don't know when your friends or your coworkers or teammates' last day is going to be. I want to make sure I'm getting the gospel to them before it's too late. You see, the gospel is only good news if it gets there on time. And we have a gospel to share. It's the greatest news that the world has ever heard. That there's 
a God in heaven who knows you and loves you, and he's inviting you into a personal relationship with himself through his son. That if you will trust in his son, you will have a relationship with him forever. This is what we get to go and offer. I came across this week uh, a survey done by Lifeway Research in 2016. It's a little bit dated, but this, the statistic said this. It said 79% of unchurched Americans are willing to hear the gospel from a Christ follower. 29% of unchurched Americans have had a gospel conversation. That means that people are far more willing to hear it than we are to tell it. We have a mission field right here in Shelby County, Alabama. That there are people that we do life with every day who are willing, some of them eager, to hear you tell them about Jesus. The question is, are you going to open your mouth and say it? This is the gospel that we have received. And we've got to be those who are eager to go and tell. My, my concern is that far too many Christians are like sponges. They're poured into and filled up with the water of the word, yes and amen, and yet they are never wrung out. And just like a sponge full of water that just sits there, eventually it will rot and it will smell. There are far too many stinky Christians in our nation who are too stagnant, sitting in pews and not doing the work. Have you ever heard of the 2080 rule? It's a common language that pastors use that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 20% of the people give 80% of the budget. It's called the 2080 rule. I don't think those numbers align with our church by God's grace. But I'm not sure about you, but I don't want to sit on the sidelines of the kingdom. Yes, I'm in the stadium, but man, don't you want to get in the game? I want to challenge you to don't allow your Christianity to be one hour on a Sunday sitting in a pew. This life is way too short. And not much longer until you and I take our last breath and we are launched into eternity. Why not leverage all that we've got left for the sake of the kingdom? Like we get off the sidelines. We get off the bench. Out of this, man, you get in the game. Kenneth, how do I do that? Man, you, you start being over the top generous in your giving. You start finding people in your neighborhood who don't know Jesus and you go and share the gospel with them. Man, you're looking for opportunities to serve here in our community, in our church. And you're sitting there thinking, man, I want to take all that I've got left and use it for the sake of the kingdom. This is the call of what God calls us to as followers of Jesus, to be active in sharing our faith. We are pursuing hard after Christ. We are giving our bodies that he's given to us. And while we still have strength and life and breath, we leverage it for the sake of the gospel. You see, a gospel culture in a church is made up of people who love Jesus and they love one another and they want to see other people come to know Christ. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? Here's my challenge I'm placing before you. It's your impact point and it's this. Make it your mission to share the gospel with at least three people this week. Three people. And I hope that makes you feel uncomfortable. Because there's going to be one of three responses when you do this. They'll reject you. They'll receive it as a planted seed. 
or they're going to accept Christ. Those are the three options. Jesus says, you are blessed when men reject you because of me. Okay, so we don't need to be a fear of rejection because Jesus says we'll be blessed. We can celebrate when we plant a seed. We don't lead them to Christ, but we get to plant that seed. Or you very well may get to open up your hands and receive fruit as it falls off the tree and someone trusts in Christ. You have no idea the impact that can happen through a gospel conversation that you're going to have this week. 80 years from now, there may be an evangelist in a stadium preaching to millions, all because you shared the gospel at a shoe store. This is a mark of a healthy church. Let's be faithful. Let's be about the gospel. Let's be a gospel-sharing people and watch the Lord use your life.